0: I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Sebastian Hubel. We will be discussing his newly published book, Fighter, Worker, and Family Man, German Jewish Men and Their Gendered Experiences in Nazi Germany between 1933 and 1941, published in Toronto by University of Toronto Press, 2022. Sebastian is an instructor at the University of the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Sebastian, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Hello, Ari. Great honor to be here as well. Thank you for the invite.
0: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey?
1: Oh, good question. I'm not sure if I have an exciting story to tell here for the listeners. Um personal background is i was born and raised in germany and as you know some kids at the age of i don't know 10 to 15 or so get for the first time exposed to history at the high school level i basically developed a fascination for for history especially german history especially these topics of the world wars and the holocaust and i was quite caught in disbelief that something so horrific could have happened in 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 the recent past so to speak in the country that I was growing up in so to speak and then one thing led to another and I just started reading and I started watching documentaries and here I am, so to speak 20-25 years later having completed a full round university education in North America on exactly these topics that I started to get interested
0: in as a teenager in Germany. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: When I started my PhD um at UBC, or well, even before, I was kind of confronted with this conundrum, or with this kind of yeah, conundrum, so to speak, that it wouldn't be an easy task to find a topic, a dissertation topic, that hadn't been analyzed already. I mean, I think there's few events in human history that have been so overly analyzed and 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 scrutinized. What were two and the Holocaust probably rank in the top, I don't know, three or five. So what I tried to do was um, look for for unresearched or under-researched topics, and I'm not going to you know congratulate myself here for having found a topic that was relatively, that was kind of um, a desideratum, so to speak. I greatly benefited from some of the colleagues, established experts in the field who kind of pointed me into the right direction. As a master's student, I already had kind of developed a great interest in cultural history, social history. So the idea to study Jewish masculinities in the Third Reich through the lens, so through a gendered lens, so to speak, kind of was a no-brainer that this would be something that uh, that I kind of got interested in, so to speak. What I'm trying to convey, of course, we probably will talk about this in much more detail in the next hour or so. There are several messages, um, but I think the key point here is basically to shift the focus and look at various forms that the Nazis undertook in discriminating against Europe's Jews, or in my case, German Jews. And I'm trying to kind of showcase that many of these forms of discrimination, is that this Nazi onslaught against Jews had gendered dimensions. And at the same time, I'm trying to kind of illuminate the experience, the Jewish experience in, in gendered ways. So how Jewish men
0: experienced uh, Nazi discrimination. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell?
1: So the way I kind of structured my
0: dissertation, which then
1: turned into a book, basically consists of a of a series of case studies. Um, I try to, on the one hand, provide historical context. I mean, I can't just, you know, start with the year 1933, so to speak, and say, this is what the Nazis did, and this is how they been gendered-based discriminated against Jewish men and so on. So I tried to provide a lot of context, pre-context. I'm going back into the 19th century. I look at cultural discourses. I tried to establish how gender roles had been established throughout Europe um, in, in Jewish and non-Jewish contexts, so to speak. And then I basically tried to organize my book into different um, case studies, as I just mentioned. One case study would look at the role that the military played and how Jewish men fit into militarism, German militarism. Another case study would look at the notion of race, racism, also in, in, in conjunction with propaganda, with Nazi discrimination, Nazi propaganda, and um, discourses such as race defilement, Russenschande might come to mind here. So this chapter looks more at race, sexuality, propaganda. And then I'm trying to make a move kind of to look at more the tra- traditional. Or so-called traditional gender roles that Jewish men try to adhere to and perform, say being a a breadwinner, a, a provider, being a father, a father figure, a family man, so to speak, how Jewish men try to perform these kinds of roles. And then towards the end of my book, I'm looking at the at forms of more physical violence, how Jewish men dealt with physical violence and tried to uphold their their understandings of manhood violence outside the concentration camp so i'm talking about street brutality here and then also a chapter on the concentration camp experience itself prior to the holocaust however so my focus is on german jews in germany so mostly the years 1933 to say 1941 when mass deportations began so yeah short answer is uh, i try to think of a number of case studies and then create a kind of more coherent role that together kind of cumulatively um, tell us a, a, a more insightful or in more depth kind of
0: story, how the gendered experience was for German Jews. What kinds of caricatures appeared in the German press depicting Jewish men? Why were they depicted in the specific ways they were?
1: So you're probably thinking of my second chapter here that looks at kind of Nazi propaganda and kind of the gender discourses that the Nazis took here. Um, Yeah, like I just said a second ago, um, what I'm trying to do is always start a case study by providing historical context. So in this case, when we look at depictions or anti-Semitic depictions of, of German Jews or Europe's Jews, I'm basically going back into early modern times and then the 19th century as well. I'm trying to highlight a number of prominent themes that had been used even before the Nazis came to power. And that kind of tried to depict the Jew as the pariah, as an outgroup, so to speak. They tried to portray or depict Jews in various negative lights. Maybe just to mention one or two themes here, um, the Jew was often portrayed as kind of a person who had no roots, as a rootless individual or a group of individuals who had no home. The Jew as the wanderer might be a familiar theme to, to our listeners here. Another one would be a, a number of caricatures or common caricature would portray the Jew as someone that cannot be trusted, as someone who is untrustworthy, who has a devious and a, a devious and. Um, 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 criminal kind of character maybe the jew as the peddler who tries to cheat you in a say that financial transaction an economic transaction something like this and then from there i try to move into the more modern forms of of anti-semitism anti-semitic propaganda visual propaganda we're looking at caricatures here postcards and and like and i'm trying to stress that there's two newer, more modern notions of anti-Semitism, one that revolves around militarism, and the other one that revolves around racism, so to speak, with that notion of race. And in each case, again, I'm trying to kind of create a line of continuity, trying to show that what the Nazis did in a very kind of amplified way, so to speak, had already its historical origins. So in the case of militarism, um, there is a plethora of, of, of visual representations that portray the Jew as a non-military individual, or I should say as a non-military man, because this is a very gendered discourse. So in some of these postcards, say from the year 1900, um, a Jew, a Jewish male would be portrayed as feeble, as weak, as short. Um, with, with certain other kinds of physical, physiognomic facial features that make him an unlikely candidate to serve in the military, say in the German military. So what I'm trying to say here is, as an ideal or an idealized man in Germany and beyond at the turn of the century, you had to have this military masculinity in you. You had to acquire this kind of this this kind of gender um yeah this kind of gender identity so to speak and this was denied verbally linguistically um discursively um when it comes to German Jewish men now this gender discourse again is not the only one of course but this would trans this this kind of discord was transport itself into the 1930s into the Nazi era and then I'm trying to kind of show exactly how this was gendered so again a jewish man was not a real man because he did not have that aptitude to serve in the german nation and therefore he was basically denied citizenship or or membership in the german folk in the german nation so to speak so i'm trying to intersect here different kinds of discourses militarism gender nationalism and they all kind of conglomerate into a into 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 something much larger here that is uh, that was of vital importance um to the to to the experience of German Jews. Racism is the other one that I just mentioned. And here too, and I, I don't think I'm saying anything revolutionary here. I mean, um, the racial discourse, the pseudo-scientific racial discourses that kind of developed in the mid-late 19th century, again in Europe and beyond, um, increasingly um portrayed Jews as a different group of people, as a different folk as a different race, so to speak. So racially, Jews were also kind of um, denied membership in the German community, so to speak. And then again, this is kind of a discourse that would get translated and transport itself into the 1930s, into the Third Reich, and then would kind of get um, 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 disseminated at a much different scale, so to speak, when it comes to Nazi propaganda. Maybe to give an example, and um, one of the most rapid anti-Semitic newspapers at the time was Der Stürmer, which is maybe in a journal or magazine that people have heard of before. And if we can kind of imagine some of the anti-Semitic images that the Stürmer and various other Nazi newspapers and, 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 and journals would depict, um, they often would take racial um racial connotations. So the Jew gets depicted in an allegedly typical Jewish way say the Jew is, I don't know, obese, has large lips, has big noses, has black, uh, fizzy hair, etc, etc. So coming back to my point here is in nine out of 10 cases, these these depictions of the Jew as being an unmilitary individual or the Jew as being racially different through his looks, This this message was carried out in highly gendered ways. Nine out of ten Jews who were depicted in these kinds of anti-Semitic ways were men. They were male. So the Jew was the Jewish male. The Jewish male was used as in, in terms of portraying a typical Jew, so to speak. So this is that chapter that looks at caricatures and propaganda. And then, of course, with that message that the Nazis and others before tried to spread and send, there comes implications, very important implications, legal implications. Um, and these are the kinds of things that I tried to highlight in that chapter. So one legal implication could be that Jews can't be trusted, and therefore Germans were basically warned through this kind of propaganda not to associate with Jewish people any longer because they are a threat, say, a, a racial threat. And then again, delve into this discourse of race defilement, rassenschande, and again I continue looking at um, depictions that again in my mind, that's my argument, that were highly highly gendered. So it was especially um, German, in quotation marks, Aryan women that were warned not to associate with Jews, aka the Jewish male, because he can be trusted, he is a race defiler, he has devious thoughts, he wants to degenerate the German um, folk, so to speak, he wants to cr- spread racial pollution. So these were very stern warnings with two audiences in mind, so to speak: the readers, non-Jewish Germans, but at the same time, it was a warning signal to the Jews, to German Jews as well, and that's kind of my point to Jewish men in particular. So maybe what's the most interesting part of that that case study, because you know, studying anti-Semitic propaganda is not really. Something novel here. Many great scholars have done that. But what I found has not been illuminated enough is the experience, like how German Jews, men and women, kind of consumed this kind of discourse, this kind of anti-Semitism, this highly gendered anti-Semitism, how they consumed it, how they kind and then kind of internalized it, how they reacted to it. And this is really where it gets quite personal, where I rely on Well, of course, primary sources say letters, diaries, memoirs, autobiographies, and whatnot. And this was quite illustrative and illuminating because the 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 reactions there were a wide range of reactions. But some of the of the authors, Jewish men who had experienced the Third Reich and had survived it, and kind of came to write down their experiences, they took this this, this, these gender discourses very very seriously, and they more or less adapted their lifestyle accordingly. If they, for instance, identified, self-identified with the prevailing, spreading anti-Semitism that was so highly gendered, as I just said, if they identified with this kind of yeah, discourse, if they thought, okay, I fit the bill, like I kind of look like what the Nazis portrayed the typical Jew um, in Der Stürmer and other kinds of um, forms of mass media, um, then I have to react to this and i might have to shift my behavior maybe in public so i don't raise suspicion so i might not get you know accused of saying of, of racial defilement of, of going out and meeting german women etc etc that might bring me into jail etc etc so there is a there's a direct link and there's a direct effect so to speak on these kinds of discourses gender discourses on the gendered self-understanding of German Jews. And again, I mean men and women here at the same time, because my research showed that um, Jewish women, um, say mothers, say wives, etc., started to increasingly worry about their men's well-being when they went out into the public because of this mass spread of anti-Semitic discourses so it's a it's a, it's a very very interesting sub sub-chap- ch- chapter sub chapter or or sub-topic, i should say and then on the other side of the pendulum so to speak we see you know uh, um, depictions or or sorry reflections in memoirs and diaries of german Jews who kind of laughed about it who kind of trivialized and ridiculed this this kind of pseudo scientific nonsense that the nazis were fabricating so to speak and they said there is no jewish race there is no jewish um um, 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 the physical kind of rep- a typical physical representation, uh, like some Jewish male made fun of, the, of these caricatures because they said, "I'm blonde, I'm blue-eyed, or I don't have a large nose, or I'm I'm physically strong, and I used to serve actually in the military, say in the First World War." So they kind of just kind of yeah di- didn't buy it, so to speak, and therefore continued their lifestyles as before. So the focus here is obviously more on the early 1930s, on the pre-Holocaust years. I'm talking mostly about the 1930s, um, but it's a but but yeah, it's a it's a very I think I think an important case study because it shows us this kind of evolution of Nazi anti-Semitism. It starts with the word, it starts with the image. It disseminates and then it kind of radicalizes itself or, the, or the, the, the 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 approaches that the Nazis undertook, so to speak, they radicalize over time. And this is an early stage and it's it's an important one that we should not neglect.
0: How does your study advance our understanding of shame? Of shame. Um
1: okay, that's an interesting question. Um when I think of shame, I'm thinking of my chapters on jewish men trying to be or trying to uphold these kinds of gender roles as being fathers as being husbands so kind of pre established gender norms that were relatively normal if i say if i may say that in europe at the time where jews were sorry were jews where men were expected to fulfill certain gender roles again an ideal man so previously mentioned was someone, especially in the German context, who had served for the nation, who had served in the army, who was ready to defend the fatherland. But I think outside of this military discourse, more generally speaking, and I think this also has a longer longevity, so to speak, the the the, the ideal man was someone who can take care of himself, who is independent who is self sufficient who has a job who has an education and thereby has a, has a has a vocation or has a job who can yeah um, take care of himself for his financial and material needs and beyond that actually who is able to sustain a family on his own so this kind of provider role is very very essentially ingrained i think in, in notions of masculinity And perhaps to this day, right, a a respected man is someone who has made it, um, who has an education, who has a job, who can take care of himself, and who also can sustain a family, children, and perhaps a wife. And of course, I realize this sounds very patriarchal, and this is not something that I personally um, identify with, but I'm just saying they were established gender norms at the time. So back to your question about shame, I think I encounter shame in my research when it is exactly these as um, pre established gender norms, gender roles that Jews tried to fulfill and have been fulfilling, and in their minds, successfully so for, for many years. I mean, the German Jews in the, of the 1930s, they, most of them thought of themselves as acculturated. Um, 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 individuals who had been emancipated, who had worked incredibly hard to to enter the German mainstream, so to speak, and, and they felt they deserved now the respect and that inclusion in German mainstream society. And again, I think gender plays a vital role here. And if a German male can say, here, I served in the army, I have a university education, I have a great job, I have a great income, I can take care of my family. I mean, these were all kinds of um, um, signals or or um, or um, examples that constitute respect and acknowledgement within society. So back to your question of shame, I think I encountered shame in my research when exactly these kinds of values and norms were undermined and were increasingly denied by the Nazis. And I'm not even sure if the Nazis had a master plan to, you know, deconstruct. Jewish masculinity or Jewish gender in general, this might have been more inadvertent or more like a, more like a, yeah, it, it might have just been more kind of, not coincidental, but more like a, something had happened on the side, so to speak. But anyways, when this happened and it was undernied and Jew, German Jews were increasingly denied to uphold and perform these kinds of gender roles, Jewish men, but not only, now faced very existentialist kinds of questions. I mean, if we look at the discourse of of being a breadwinner, of being a provider, the Jewish male being a provider for himself but for his family as well. And I think it's relatively well known that one of the early strategies that the Nazis undertook to create a Jewish outgroup within German society was to, to rely on and use forms of social, economic, um, and, and, and and cultural exclusion. I mean, trying to exclude Jews from social, economic, and cultural life. And lots of examples probably come to mind here. That Jews were no longer allowed, you know, to attend Christian schools. They were not allowed to use, uh, I don't know, uh, pools or the cinema or sit on a park bench and all these kinds of things. But of course, the most existentialist, dilemma and and, and 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 yeah dilemma was for jewish families to face unemployment and because we are talking in many cases about this kind of traditional family model where the father is the breadwinner who leaves the house in the morning goes to his job makes money and the, and the jewish woman st- stays at home in the role of the mother and taking care of children and the household etc cetera, etc cetera. I'm not saying this was the only model that existed at the time there were many jewish women that were employed or independent or lived on their own but it is one dominant i would say um, um <clears throat> model that that, that 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 created gender roles and and expectations so when this model come came under attack and again jewish family faced unemployment because jewish men were let go in their professions, because that's what the Nazis did through legal means, letting go of Jewish employees. It also happened from the grassroots bottom up, so to speak, where more and more German employers let go of their Jewish employees. There were exceptions. I mean, if a Jew- Jewish male could prove um, that, for instance, he had served in the First World War, that he was a decorated war veteran, and so on, they were let uh, they, they, they had some reprieve for the time being, so to speak. They could continue in their professions. If Jews were self-employed, of course, that's another kind of subfield, so to speak, where many could continue in their professions for the time being, unless membership in a certain profession, I'm thinking of law, I'm thinking of medicine, was also outright denied. Anyways, going in circles here, if Jewish families face this kind of existential threat of unemployment, lack of income, shame comes into play because this was Jewish men who experienced this shame. I'm not saying entirely, of course, that the existential anxiety, the fear, the concerns, this this, this pressure um, was something that that was experienced in in the family as a whole. The mothers and and other family members, the children, of course, they also feared. But I'm trying to say that because of this pre-established, prevailing model of the men being the primary income maker, so to speak, this shame was experienced in very gendered ways by these Jewish men. And then the question arises, of course, how would they deal with this shame? On the one side, we could say Jewish men thought of themselves as as failures. They could not uphold these gender norms and expectations that were normative, that were normal. And not just within, of course, Jewish society or Jewish circles. I'm talking about really mainstream kind of general um, um you know, gender values here outside of, of, of Germany as well. Here, this 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 really transcends, see themselves as failures and thereby resort to certain um behaviors that that correlate with shame. I have encountered in my research many tragic saddening stories of jewish men resorting to say alcoholism um to depressive behaviors depression is a is a a, a large theme where they basically become more passive individuals who see themselves as helpless or consider themselves as helpless or other people, say, within the family or within the friend circles, consider these males as passive, as helpless, as failures. So this, this this reconstruction of gender here, or this, this emasculation that Jewish men experienced, that this happened in a very dynamic relational way. It's not like Jewish men... Only themselves considered themselves as failures, but they were in a passive voice, I'm using passive voice here, were considered as failures by their socio-economic, by their social environments. And this then leads to this kind of reconfiguration of gender norms, and I find that really, really, really interesting that, say, sometimes wives spouses children would consider their fathers as, as, as this kind of pitiful um, um, um yeah helpless individuals they felt bad for them because they were staying at home all day they experienced say boredom um and again sometimes resorted to alcoholism to depression and and, and just these kinds of behaviors that together we could say constitute um, shame so to speak the most drastic form of course um would be suicide as a form of shame some of these men that i studied did resort to suicide so a very interesting kind of um, research result so to speak that i I think my research yielded was that in the 1930s i'm talking about pre-world war ii pre-holocaust if you look at nazi germany only if you look at the figure the numbers of german jews that that resorted to suicide we will find some highly gendered results. It was predominantly men who resorted to suicide. And now this, of course, begs the question, why was it more men than women that consider, that are considered and then resorted to suicide? And I think your question is great, Ari. It is because of shame. And, and the shame stems from this kind of socioeconomic pressure that is highly inflected with gender norms. And it was Jewish men who said, "We can no long, I can no longer be that kind of respected man that I tried to be, that I thought I was, that I had worked so hard for, again through profession, through education, through through material assets that they would have accumulated, that, that kind of um, capital, uh, cultural capital, material capital that they would have accumulated over many generations, sometimes, and this was all denied to them and and kind of uh, taken away, and if we. If you bring in class, for instance, and we truly turn this into kind of an intersectional analysis here, then we see that gender and class go in tandem here. It was especially the middle upper class German Jews or Jewish men, I should say, that felt this pressure. Of 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 losing everything and thereby facing shame, um, people say lawyers, notaries, professors, scientists, um, self-employed um, or entrepreneurs, businessmen, who felt like overnight they lost everything and they just could not find a way out. But like I just said, to resort to suicide. And again, I think the underlying uh, driver behind this was the self-experienced. Um, or the self-perceived form of shame. So with radical consequences. So I think shame is a really interesting keyword in in, in this context in my study here. It had, yeah, drastic consequences. And of course, I could talk a lot more about this. I mean, not everyone who experienced shame would resort to say alcoholism, depression, or suicide. Um, Others would have safety networks. Maybe they would find other kinds of safety valve so to speak to rely on and 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 find a and find a solution Um, a few examples um if the jewish family had say connections to outside of germany they could consider emigration Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe they could consider retraining as in getting a new job or like um, going back to school and trying to find a new job so to speak um, I have seen incredible examples of resiliency and 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 and, and, and steadfastness for lack of a better word um, among the German German Jews that I studied again men and women together so if they were if they represented a very strong family unit the chances were higher to come out of this um together in a in, in a safe way um, but I've seen many cases of Jewish men who tried to make a living? Who tried to make to make some kind of income? To try to make you know to meet the demands and 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 pay the bills and whatnot, just to sustain the family. Some people, you know, former judges started being um, tutors, t- teaching high school children in the afternoon, so to speak. Others engaged in the black market. Um, others. Um, um, started being solicitors going out I don't know into the countryside and trying to sell some kind of merchandise maybe family possessions just to make a little bit of an income that of course was needed uh, to continue to continue to survive so to speak so a very wide range of behaviors when it comes to shame I think shame was relatively common quite quite universal so to speak in all Jewish families. And again, I see this in a relational kind of contextual way, so to speak. It's not something that only Jewish men experienced. This was this was something that German Jews in, in total kind of experienced, but I would say it had gendered connotations and there were gendered reactions by the Jewish men that I studied.
0: What new information does your research convey regarding Julius Streicher, and his activities.
1: Yeah, the Stürmer Julius Streicher, the famous um, Nazi propagandist. Um, I'm I'm not an expert on, on on Nazi propaganda, and I think my my focus in my research is much much more on the Jewish experience, so to speak. So when it comes to my methodology, I'm I'm, I'm trying to kind of kill three birds with one stone, so to speak. I'm trying to look at the cultural discursive level. What I'm trying to say here is I'm looking at prevailing notions of, of, of gender, gender expectations, gender roles, gender construction, how this discursively culturally had been constructed and, and kind of perpetuated over time. The same time I'm looking, coming back to my chapter on antisemitism, I'm looking at the cultural discursive forms of antisemitism. This is where Julius Streicher would come into play. But then from that cultural level where I look at ideas and sentiments, mentalities, um, 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 and cultural understandings. I move to the second kind of level, which is the more political one, where I would look at, at real material results, so to speak, or implications of the cultural realm. So what does it mean if we have, say, cultural anti-Semitism in newspapers or in der stürmer um, you know, um, 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 orchestrated by Yulius Streicher. So I'm looking more into the implications, like, like say, um, yeah, back to Rasumian, the racial defilement, how Jewish men adopted their behaviors, for instance, because of the words and the images that were in circulation. So more of the social reality, so to speak, or the laws that maybe came came out of these again of the words and the images that kind of predated, um so to speak the new laws and um, again the Nuremberg race laws for instance should come to mind here where sexual relationships between Jews and in quotation mark Aryans were no longer allowed so my focus is more on the social implications of what it meant what these words and images meant and I do so at the at, at the political level I'm looking at laws and ordinances and all these kinds of things and then my third layer is the more the, the, the individual the, the the deeper level the more psychological level where I try to look into the heads of these of the of the authors that wrote you know these numerous Diaries and biographies and whatnot so I guess what I'm trying to say here that the, the the my first methodological level looking at the discursive at the words and the images um I think is very important it's needed it provides context it shows us the nature sorry the gendered nature of say, say um, anti-Semitism, but I wouldn't call myself an expert on Julius Streicher, his biography or his Nazi um, um, papers. But maybe to offer a, a better answer here, I, I think we often take Nazi anti-Semitism in in, in a non-gendered way. So what I'm, again, what I'm trying to say, and I kind of elaborated already on that in in, in, the, in the previous question, I think we should have of a more we should have a more critical eye a more critical lens when we, when we study anti-Semitic propaganda, say in the Stürmer, for instance, and and gender is just such a dominant theme in in, in Nazi <clears throat> in Nazi anti-Semitic Semitic propaganda, um, and that's basically my main point here, so to speak. So when we look at again the caricatures, racial defilement is a very prominent theme, in the early mid. 1930s and um, how can we not include gender in our understanding so to speak um again I'm speculating here a little bit um, but obviously the people behind this kind of propaganda they were often men I mean you Streicher was a men I think they were very ingrained in traditional patriarchal roles that considered men as probably more important or as more dominant as more physically as as physically stronger and thereby having more authority, having more power. I mean, ultimately, we're talking about power relationships here. So the Nazis in charge, creating and then disseminating these Nazi discourses, I think, had a certain worldview that included traditional gender roles and that saw men in more traditionally dominant roles. So what they tried to do thereby is to undermine exactly this kind of idealized so we use in in in, in academia we use the term hegemonic masculinity to are kind of trying to undermine kind of eviscerate this hegemonic masculinity from these jewish men so to speak from yeah from jewish males in general and at the same time simultaneously kind of idealize a an, an Aryan masculinity what the 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 ideal Aryan Germanic male fulfilled all these kinds of gender expectations that then were amplified or sometimes actually exaggerated in in the media. So the perfect Aryan male was strong, physically robust. He could fight. He could use his hands. Manual labor was very much praised. I mean Nazi Germany over the intellectual work so often Jewish males were kind of decried as you know as thinkers as intellectuals but people that don't do stuff they don't construct stuff they don't use their hands they can get their hands dirty so to speak but the idealized German Aryan male was exactly that kind of person bodily strong abled um, the provider and protector of the family Um, blue eyed blonde of course everything that the Jewish male was not. So if we have this kind of gendered um, 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 um methodology, so to speak, or appreciation in mind, then I think we are better equipped to study Nazi anti-Semitism, including the Stürmer um uh, Julius Streicher.
0: What does your research teach us about the strengths and shortcomings? of diaries and memoirs as historical sources?
1: Memoirs and sources, diaries. Yeah, that's a really good question. Again, kind of relates to methodology. Um, I think we all, I think scholars in general, historians especially, are quite aware um, that we need to take primary sources with a grain of salt, that we need to be very careful when it comes to source analysis. And that primary sources, basically, they come with a bias. I mean, they were written at a given time by, 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 by someone, con- constructed by someone, and they can never be neutral. They can never be objective. They can never be value-free, so to speak. So I think if we if, if we approach a topic like, like gender in the Holocaust or gender in Nazi Germany, live with this kind of skepticism, a healthy dose of skepticism, mm-hmm. And again, that's something that all historians must do. Um, I think then we are, I think then we are on the right path, so to speak. If we just take every word for granted and kind of accept it uncritically, I think then we might run into some problems and might possibly reach um, some kind of inaccurate conclusion, so to speak. Um, let me be more concrete. When we just talked about shame a few minutes ago um i i i I refer to that shame could be the result of of facing an existentialist kind of threat i mean when someone loses a job and has no prospect of finding another job i mean it's the other thing right it's not like nazi germany had lots of jobs available for for the groups that they're trying to exclude from the mainstream so if this shame is kind of experienced so to speak and then, then German Jews had to find alternative ways to kind of deal with this, with the situation. And this is something quite interesting here. Um, it, it goes more into literary theory, so to speak, how to cope with this pressure, how to cope with this kind of shame. And the act of writing could actually be kind of a remedy for some of these people trying to not necessarily makes sense, but just the act of writing these words down could have actually ameliorated a, a little bit at least. It could have helped these, these, these authors or these individuals that faced this kind of pressure, so to speak. So what I'm trying to say is we have to ask ourselves why sometimes these diaries, more so than memoirs, were written in the first place. What kind of purpose did they try to fulfill? Were they trying to tell a story to whom? to maybe the descendants, to a future generation? Did some of these German Jews think you know, the end was close, so to speak, and they wanted to write down um, something to be remembered for? I think this was less the case in my study, because again, my focus is on the pre-Holocaust years. And many of the people, with the exception of the Jewish male, uh, Jewish men that commit suicide, who then wrote possibly a goodbye letter, the majority of Jewish men that I studied did have the hope to weather the storm so to speak and, and come out of this 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 unprecedented crisis that they were experiencing in one way or another so what i'm saying again is that sometimes writing letters and diaries did not have this kind of purpose of of, of, of you know informing Uh, an after world, so to speak, or the world after the Holocaust or after the Nazis. It was something much more personal that actually helped themselves, so to speak, the act of writing. It was kind of a a time filler, so to speak. So back to your question, how can we look at these primary sources? Again, we need to be critical, as historians always should be. And we cannot take all of these, uh, all of the self-reflections word for word. So when Jewish men, for instance, um, were facing these kinds of threats, say, losing employment or being ridiculed in propaganda as being non-military men, as being non-German men. You know, in national, national identity, of course, was also denied to these guys. When we read their memoirs, we can see a very interesting paradigm, and that is kind of defying this Nazi attack this Nazi attack on their gender identity. So while they might not have fought back openly in the public, you know, say, criticizing the Nazis, criticizing Hitler, criticizing the Stürmer, saying everything in this newspaper is a a bunch of falsehoods, so to speak, because we all know what would have happened then, as would have probably arrested in, you know, imprisonment or even worse. They did show this resiliency and, in a sense, fight back in, in different forms, in, in a different realm, so to speak, in a more private realm. And that's what I'm trying to say here. The act of writing could be considered as a form of resistance, in other words. And for instance, the words that many Jewish male authors used when it comes to militarism and, and that German identity I just referred to is basically exact is, is basically opposing what the Nazis were saying. So if the Nazis denied German identity... And, and and military masculinity, these male authors did exactly the opposite. They said, look what I did. Look what family I come from. My grandfather, my father, all fought in the war. I fought in the First World War. These were the decorations that I had accumulated. These were the battles that I was wounded at, and so on. Like, out of 10 memoirs that I would read, I don't know, eight or so would start with World War I. It was of such major, symbolic more than that actually value to these authors and the families to german jews in general that they had to rely and cling on this um, um, to not recreate but to to perpetuate and and sustain that kind of german jewish identity or german jewish male identity i could say so again, back to the question: how, how do we have to treat diaries and memoirs as highly emotional, subjective um, um, reconstructions of this Jewish experience? Sometimes, when we come, when we think of shame, for instance, here too, we have to ask ourselves: Did the Jewish men always confess or acknowledge their shame or their loss, say, the loss of income, the loss of of public standing? Or did they maybe just undermine it? Sorry, not undermine it, trivialize it, or kind of relativize it, and kind of trying to turn it into something not as big as it as it actually was, trying to portray themselves still as heroes or someone who was in control, who was in charge, but in reality, actually, they had lost really everything, and that could have been then testified or or or, or evinced by say family members, the children, the spouses, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess I'm going in circles. What I'm trying to say here is diaries and memoirs can be self-reflections of this Jewish male experience, but it is highly biased and it might not always be as, 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 as honest and truthful as we might think. So some of these authors, for instance, did have in mind an audience, someone who would read this book Now, if you write your own life story, now I'm moving a little bit more into memoirs. Diaries and memoirs are radically different. If we think of memoirs, if we think of self-constructions of these Jewish experiences after the war, after the Holocaust, then I would say we tend to see more of an attempt by these authors to portray themselves as tough guys, as heroes who kept the family together and who weathered that storm, so to speak. But then again, my hopefully my 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 study in more detail kind of proves the various challenges that these men actually um, um experienced again in various forms where the gender identity gets questioned and denied. And 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 therefore I would say diaries and letters are almost not more valuable, but differently valuable because they have this, this sense of immediacy um, that the memoirs of course don't have. But yeah, long story short. Both diaries and memoirs need to be read very critically. And when it comes to an individual writing his or her life story, or reflecting on his or her, say at any given day in a diary, it, it's always important to keep in mind who the audience is. If you do it for yourself, then you might be more open, more honest, more maybe a more raw. And, and by raw, I mean less, say less eloquent or think of punctuation and grammar. But if you write your life story years after, decades after and you want to inform friends, family and maybe be young and actually get it published, then, then then especially we need to be very, very critical here because there might be an agenda at play and the author might have yeah have an agenda as in and trying to to, to to construct a certain image, of himself, in, in this case of himself, because I'm talking mostly about male authors. And of course, we need to be aware of, of, of such kind of possible conflicts of interest.
0: How does your research recontextualize the Kristallnacht pogrom?
1: The Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht is a interesting um, um, event that I studied. I did not walk into my research thinking I would look that much at Kristallnacht. This was quite unplanned but this is one of these classic examples where the sources guide your research and you just have to be open and flexible Um, kristallnacht appears in various contexts um i don't know where to start again one of my first few chapters so the first two chapters look at again military masculinity so here i look at again how military masculinity kind of was constructed in pre-Nazi times, how male identity was so closely linked to being a military man, someone who would fight in the far, who would fight for the nation, um, um, if necessary, who would serve the fatherland, who would 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 serve the nation, so to speak. In the second chapter, then again, I look at Nazi propaganda, sexual discourses, and the like, and 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 they both basically f- uh, focus more on the early and mid 1930s where these. Where these discourses were much more prominent. So here it was the word, it was the image that kind of, you know, killed the Jewish social life, or the, the, the social existence within Nazi Germany. Now, when we move towards the end of the 1930s, towards the end of the decade, Kristallnacht happened, of course, in November of 1938, then we're looking at kind of the next stage, so to speak. It's when I use that word evolution of genocide, the next stage, the next radicalizing stage um, in, in this kind of Nazi genocide that was uh, in in the making in 1938 at the latest, I guess I would say. What happens in Kristallnacht is that, and this came as a shock, we need to face this. This came as a shock to many of the German Jewish Jewish families um, who had remained in Germany, who had Said, we stay here, we weather the storm, we show this resiliency. I already kind of alluded to a number of examples where husbands would try to keep and stay employed, find a different way of making an income, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where they tried to uphold this, this German military male identity. By 1938, the situation changed um radically, and this was a sudden intrusion. In 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 the Jewish in 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 German Jewish German Jewish lives, I would say. So on the one hand, of course, they had been already accustomed to you know the economic, the cultural, the social kind of exclusion, the anti-Semitism, the discrimination, the 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 the, the plethora of anti-Semitic laws that had been had been passed in the previous four or five years or so. So this was not new. What was new in 1938? Was this the physical dimension, I would say, like from one day to another, invading people's privates home at night, beating people up, um, injuring, brutalizing their, 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 physically, their bodies and their souls. And then of course, arresting more than 30,000 German Jews and deporting them um, to concentration camps. This was a departure. This was unprecedented. This wasn't, this was a, this was something different. And German Jews had to reckon that very quickly and adapt to it. Now, my study, what hope? My study hopefully contributes to this this context of you know radicalizing stages, and in this evolution of of, of genocide, Kristallnacht marks once again a highly gendered experience. Um, here's a few examples. When we when we think of Kristallnacht and we think of you know the broken glass, the destructed, the destroyed. Um, infrastructure, uh, the homes, the shop, the shop windows, etc, etc. I think we also need to look more at the the people involved, of course, who were affected by it. Again, existential threats come to mind here. I mean, if your stores, your, your, your business gets vandalized, gets destroyed, the merchandise you're trying to sell has been robbed or again destroyed, you face an existentialist threat and this disc- could be experienced in very general ways. Um, But what I'm trying to emphasize in the Kristallnacht chapter or subchapter is is to shift more towards this kind of physical violence here, because, again, this is what I'm trying to say. This was relatively unprecedented. I do point out in my chapter on physical violence and gender, I do point out in my chapter on concentration camps, that Jewish men were arrested um, prior to Kristallnacht but on a much much different scale we're talking about maybe a few hundred so to speak um that had been arrested and put into concentration camps they had not been killed there they would have been brutalized and often discriminated against in these camps and 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 and, and would face terrible of course terrible treatments and um, i think that's that that, that that's, that's pretty evident here but yeah it's just a different on on, on, on yeah, on different scales, so to speak, and we need to really keep this in mind here, a few hundred versus a 30 plus thousand. Now, the other distinction we need to make here is the few hundred that would have been arrested in these first five years. I'm talking about Jewish men here. Very, very few Jewish women would have been arrested. The reason for their arrests would have been not so much being Jewish, so their religious affinity, but it would have been affiliation, I mean, but it would have been something else, probably a political, uh, probably kind of a political um, reason. Maybe the Jewish... Person in question would have been, I don't know, maybe a mem- member of parliament or a member of a political party. It would have been a journalist that would have written something quite critical, um, that the that, that the Nazis would not tolerate. This again changed radically in nineteen thirty eight. Their distinctions were not made to what party you belonged, what party you had voted for in the nineteen twenties, or what your political, I don't know, leanings or 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 um, um, and beliefs, et cetera, et cetera, were all did not matter. The thirty plus thousand men sorry, the 30 plus thousand German Jews that were arrested in November 1938 were all men. So that distinction continued. That distinction was made by the Nazis. And I find that incredibly interesting. And that, of course, leads to other questions. I mean, 30,000 is a huge number, first of all. And then again, why only men? And there is no clear answer. But of course, the historical record we need to look at and I think the argument, well not I think, the argument that I'm trying to make here is that it was just another push mechanism that the Nazis tried to rely on to further exclude German Jews, not just men, German Jews in total, from German life. And at this point in the late in late 1938, they were trying to push to get Jews physically removed from Germany. In other words, they were trying to push to increase. Emigration efforts by German Jews. Because as I had just previously said, some had left Germany in the early 1930s, but the vast majority of German Jews did remain in Nazi Germany for the first five years or so. And they tried to make it work somehow. Again, I already alluded to that. So the Nazis perhaps. In a kind of sudden move of frustration and whatnot, were deciding, um, um, to kind of escalate things and trying to 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 further to enhance, um, their attempts to make Germans leave Germany, uh, German Jews leave Germ- uh, leave Germany, so to speak, and they did so through highly gendered means. So invading people's homes and destroying property is one thing. Touching the body. And, and injuring, brutalizing the body of children and women was not yet a thing that the Jews, sorry, that the that the Nazis would um would do yet. So there was still this kind of hesitancy, so to speak. This was something that had not normalized yet. We are talking about pre-war contexts here, and again within within the public, within the public sphere, so to speak. You know, beating up women and children would not have gone well. I would argue, within German mainstream society. Um, Mainstream society already reacted very negatively when it comes to Kristallnacht. They did not condone or they did not um, 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 support this kind of rushed impetuous nazi move to 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 single out brutalize and then arrest and um, jewish people that had done absolutely nothing wrong so in a sense it's a bit of an experimental i would say experimental form of brutalization that the nazis utilized here and they singled out the jews alongside of gender or or biological sex, I should say. So it was Jewish men that were singled out, and this is something that comes out in Kristallnacht, and I think therefore Kristallnacht is an important chapter that we need to study in more depth. It's not something we we should just brush over, because often Kristallnacht is kind of used, you know, as a as a or at least at least that's how I perceive it. It's kind of used as a prelude to the Holocaust, like it's brushed over very briefly mentioned in a in a survey book or in the survey class, so to speak. But I think there's a lot more that we need to study. So there's this gender aspect of arresting Jewish men and then putting them into concentration camps. Why? Because the Nazis um, figured that the remaining family members that are not in the concentration camps, so the spouses, women, children, friends, they would then enhance their emigration efforts. And once they would obtain... An exit visa and uh, an immigration immigration papers to, to to somewhere else, then they would release these Jewish men, so to speak. So they would keep them as, as kind of as bargaining chips, almost, so to speak. And again, they did that in a kind of gendered way. Now, there's more gendered nuances that come to the fore when we think of Kristallnacht. Um, very very interesting in the personal narratives that I read, not in all, but in some of them. Once again, military masculine. Military masculinity mattered incredibly. How so? Um, again, in their self portrayals and again, we need to take often this these, these narratives with a grain of salt, because sometimes the authors, the writers, they kind of you know glorify themselves when they retell these stories. But quite a few would rely on military masculinity on these in, in these kinds of instances when their homes would get invaded during Kristallnacht. So they would say in their memoirs, in their diaries, we try to be steadfast, we try to stay I'm um, stiff and and follow orders and not show weakness. These kinds of references were made again in the memoirs and in the diaries. And but if you did show the exact opposite, if you started crying, if you started begging, if you started negotiating with the Nazis, you know, these Nazi thugs, like SA-men, for instance, standing in your in your bedroom, standing in your living room at 2 a.m. at night. That's the kind of situation we need to picture here. If they started crying or begging or whatnot, according to their their memoirs they would receive extra harsh treatment so they're saying that military masculinity actually helped them face this this kind of unexpected sudden um, um, um onslaught of, of violence against them and, and and their family, so to speak it goes even further if they did perform this military masculinity and in some rare cases actually showed the Nazis standing in your bedroom, that they were actually military men like them, and that, for instance, they had fought in the First World War, and they could present a war medal, they could present a, a kind of a certification or whatnot. In quite a few cases, actually, the Nazis would treat these German males differently, as in better. They would still arrest them, because they had to follow orders, but they would actually treat them with a higher degree of respect. So again, uh, an experience here that we need to differentiate along gendered lines. Oh, here in this case, military masculinity uh, mattered tremendously. In some rare cases, Jewish men were actually not arrested because of their military records. So again, military masculinity is quite evident here in in this context. And then, of course, the story continues. Once these men were arrested and put into the concentration camps of Sachsenhausen, Buchenwald, Dachau, um, the most yeah, notorious ones in Germany at the time um, then we need to ask ourselves how did these men in these camps um, 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 try to survive and once again military masculinity comes to the fore here so I don't want to go now too off topic here your, your question was on Kristallnacht um, but it's just very very telling that say the day after the first few days after the first few weeks or so after the arrest in the concentration camps The ones who knew, who had previously internalized military masculinity, what it means to be a military man, and who possibly, by internalized, I mean who had possibly lived it before, who had experienced it before, say in the First World War. So men in their 40s and 50s, they kind of had something they could rely on and compare that. That experience with the current one, so to speak. So they would listen, they would show discipline, they would show, um, um, yeah, again, that kind of steadfastness, so to speak. They would not show any signs of physical vulnerability of weakness and so on. And they then would argue again in their memoirs many years later, they were the ones who fared a lot better in the concentration camps after Kristallnacht. Other ones who did not have this habitus of militarism, they, 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 they succumbed to Nazi terror and pressure and often lost their lives, actually. And if that's not enough, the people who had been arrested, the 30 plus thousand Jewish men, um, most of them eventually were released once they could present, um, you know, immigration papers and whatnot, as I just mentioned. But the ones, interestingly enough, the ones who, who were let go first were the ones who could present war medals and whatnot, who could prove that they had fought for Germany, that they had played some kind of important role in German history, in German life, so to speak. So in, in this sense, military masculinity once again paid off. And of course, this is highly ironic because the men who could fare the best in the camps because of this disgendered in, internalization of military masculinity were the ones who were let go first sometimes after a few weeks or months, whereas the ones who had the hardest time adapting to a kind of camp existence through the utilization of gender norms were the ones who stayed the longest. But yeah, I did not expect that I would find so much material in the various letters, memoirs um, on Kristallnacht. And just kind of to finish off this question, maybe one of the reasons... Kristallnacht is a very prominent theme in my sources, is that the majority of sources that I looked at, or the majority of authors that I looked at, um, were German, Jewish, middle class men and women who did survive Nazi Germany and the Holocaust by getting out of Nazi Germany in time. So the ones who had experienced experience, Kristallnacht, and then would get out of Germany before. Well, immigration was technically um, possible until 1941, and then there's, of course, the other means of escape and whatnot. But many of them would get out 1938 or 1939, and this is just the, 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 the bulk of sources that I came across in that's how I explain why Kristallnacht features so prominently. So that has mostly to do with the with my focus on German Jews and not on Europe's Jews, and my focus on the pre-war years more so than on the years of the Holocaust itself. That's another thing, by the way, that I try to um, accomplish in my study. Coming back to your very first question, what is the story that I want to tell and what is it that I try to accomplish in my book? I'm, I'm trying to deliberately shift my focus more into the 1930s and a little more away from the 1940s, so to speak. Because the Holocaust is a is a is a is like I said many times, it comes as an evolution. There, there's a series of radicalizing stages here. And we can't we can't just you know skip the the, the first important stages and start straight off with Auschwitz or or you know the, the ghettos or World War II, so to speak. I think that this the story that I'm trying to tell you through the lens of gender. It's vitally important to more fully understand um, the Holocaust uh, as, as a whole.
0: What does your research teach us about the suffering and plight of family units during the Holocaust?
1: Um, yeah, great question. So I have an entire chapter on on family, on German Jewish men and how they tried to function or continue functioning as important members of the family so to speak um here i'm looking at uh, jewish men playing the role of fathers not playing is the wrong word performing the role of fathers and as husbands as well Mm -hmm. and i think here we have some kind of um i think here we are the cutting edge so to speak because there's very very little literature and studies on on Jewish men as fathers and as husbands. I think the history of emotions is a relatively new subfield. I think we're going to see great new insights and great new research, and it's already being underdone um, as I speak here. So, this is something that I could not rely too much on secondary sources here or established kind of um, historiographies. Of course, I also had to expand my horizon and not just look at, you know, say, the, experience of, of of jewish families in the holocaust i mean this goes much bigger now this is the history of fatherhood this is the history of of, of the family so to speak now i greatly benefited um, of course i'm um, stating the obvious from feminist scholarship and feminist and um, um, theory i mean starting in i don't know going back to the 1970s and 80s i mean we have the first studies of, of gender studies i should say of the holocaust in the 1970s and 80s focus there arguably was more on women for good reasons because women had been in history neglected for for well that's another question for how long of course so they tried to fill a very important gap there a, a desideratum and i greatly benefited from much established scholarship by eminent feminist historians who did look at women and often when Previous historians did look at how the Holocaust was experienced by Jewish women, or how Jewish women were were treated during the Holocaust. They would um, include children as way as well, or they would study the role of women, qua the role of Jewish mothers. Now, my point my point of departure in that chapter is um, there is another parent figure missing in this in this kind of equation, so to speak, and that is the Jewish father. So I was trying to kind of study many of the sources that I had available, because these Jewish male individuals were also husbands and fathers. So again, this was perhaps a tad more coincidental. But maybe it has to do with the way I looked for my sources. But again, the vast majority of sources I ended up with came from middle class, middle aged um, Jewish men who had been established and who had already been married and who already had children. So what does it mean for families? Well, I think I tried to illuminate that the role of Jewish fathers was also a very important one. And again, this kind of shows this wide pendulum of of reactions and behaviors that Jewish men adapted during the 1930s, during the pre-Holocaust years. I mentioned resorting to behaviors like suicide depression um alcoholism um, passivity as experienced by family members so you know jewish men just hanging out at home or sitting outside the front door playing cards with the neighbor so to speak because they were all unemployed etc etc but we can never generalize here and in my sub chapter on on jewish fathers i did encounter a a very, very interesting, um, I don't know, um, cluster of reactions, so to speak, or, or behaviors that some, not all, but some Jewish men resorted to. And that is spend more time with the family, more consciously, more actively. As in, if Jewish men as fathers were now at home, unemployed, Trying to make a living or trying to figure out, you know, a solution, maybe getting out of Germany by simply waiting for an immigra- immigration visa or exit visa to arrive. There was a lot of time available that these men had at hand. And now, how could they spend that time? Well, they spent it more and more so at home with the families, with the spouses, and with the children. And and this is um yeah this is something I definitely did not expect. I mean, it makes sense at first sight that with the available time you would spend it more so with your with your close ones, with your family members. But how they spend the time was a was quite a heartwarming um experience actually for me as the researcher. Here, we can see how Jewish men developed a kind of perhaps unprecedented intimacy with their family members and with their children especially. Again, I'm a little bit on shaky grounds here because I think fatherhood models, as far as I have researched them in a in the context of Germany prior to the Nazi rise to power, say a perfect father in 1900 was kind of a, a disciplinarian like someone who was quite strict and a little bit more rigid and who was not too emotional to the children who was making sure children go to school and they're punctual you know kind of instilling in them Germ- german or prussian ideals so to speak work hard study hard so to speak and 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 often also take the role of an absent father because jewish men as non-jewish men they were outside of the of the private sphere work was outside of the home i mean this is the kind of society we're looking at right this is not medieval europe where you would live at home and and, and produce your own things at home so the father often and again i'm i'm, I'm aware that i'm falling loo here to a, to a little bit of a generalization but the father figures often were up, absent and, and did not have that kind of emotional bonding, or at least not as much as they would then develop during the Holocaust or during the, the, the Third Reich. And this is a result that, of course, I did not expect that I found very, very intriguing. Again, I explain it through the, the surplus of time that these Jewish men had to be with the family and to play an active role in the family. Now, the question is, how did they spend the time at home? And Again, I can generalize here, but like I like I try to conclude in that chapter. It is a new level of intimacy, like caring for the children, going out with them, playing maybe in the park, maybe buying them a little gift or so, or or, or building, you know, self-constructing maybe a toy for for uh, for a religious holiday, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Taking great interest in their future, therefore, in their education jewish fathers become jewish educators tutors mentors um you know teaching them another language teaching them some science or something that they knew from their own profession etc etc so the father role chapter is is very very is it's probably one of the most emotional chapters that i wrote in this book and also due to the fact that when i touch on things like um emigration for instance or when i touch on you know the, the kind of more. Um, the, the kind of behaviors that Jews Jewish men would use at the very end, if they could not find any other solution, say suicide, then, of course, it gets very, very emotional if they actually left primary sources behind, say, a good goodbye letter to their children. Right. Um, this is this is often quite saddening stuff, but I think more more common were references to emigration or I had more material on emigration. So what I'm thinking here is um, when Jewish families did decide to get out of Germany, it was often not as a full unit that they left Germany. Sometimes it was the parents first, and then they would try to make a new living somewhere else. Maybe it's in North America. Maybe they would get established first, try to get a job somewhere, a house, and then they would ask for the children to come. But towards the end of the decades, so this was more of a more isolated instances in the early 1930s when people still thought there is time, we can get out, but let the dad get out first or let the parents get out first and the children come later when it's safe. There's a complete reversal towards the end of the 1930s. Um, Again, when it became more obvious that it was jewish men that were victimized physically i should say brutalized put into concentration camps i'm not saying jewish women were not um brutalized or victimized again this is not a this is not a story of competition here this is not a competition of suffering i'm just saying it was more likely for jewish men to be physically brutalized and interned in camps i think that is a safe statement that i can make here and my my research proves it it was jewish men left germany first often through the means of escape and it was actually often the spouses the the the, the wives the women who said you need to get out now because you are not safe go into hiding and even better cross the border illegally the men need to leave so you can imagine what kind of um, emotional exchanges then I would encounter in the in the, in the the surviving evidence, so to speak. Letter exchanges, for instance, when fathers were no longer in touch with their families, with their loved ones, with their children and spouses. And again, this could go both ways. So the husbands are the ones who leave first or the husbands are the ones who leave um, last, so to speak, because they would send the children out first. So towards the end of the decade, coming back to my point here, towards the end of the decade, um, when it became very evident that life was incredibly increasingly precarious and no longer safe for jews in germany they would send the children out first whatever means they had available get the children out first their safety matters more now i'm not saying this is a fatherly instinct i would say this is something that women and men mothers and fathers would do together and often decide together i would even uh, argue or would basically agree with established scholarship here that women played a very very proactive and maybe even more proactive role than men did but my point is once the decision is made that the children need to get out first for safety reasons because maybe emigration was no longer an option or the waiting lists were just too huge the prospect of getting out of the country legally um, was just was just um, becoming incre- incredibly slim and the only means to get the children out was through some rescue efforts, through some aid organizations abroad, maybe some kind of Christian organizations accepted children. Uh, some of you might have heard of the Kinder Transporter, um, where basically the UK accepted, um, I forgot the, the, the precise number, but I want to say up to 10,000 children actually ended up going to the UK. When we have this kind of encounter where children leave, and parents stay behind, we must include father's perspectives as well as, as, as vital members of the family. And again, this is where I said I was on shaky grounds at first. You know, Maybe it is more of a generalization or kind of a misconception to think of the father as this absent figure who has no emotions and who just cares about you know, you know the children's uh, future education and jobs and whatnot when we look at the letters and diaries of jewish fathers saying goodbye to their children then it gets very very emotional and many of these men um cannot hold back their emotions and you know in writing they basically cry to us us as being the readers, so to speak Uh, it's very heartbreaking for them they 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 worry incredibly they worry a lot why because they kind of construct trucked or they, they try to kind of continue performing this gender role of being not so much the provider in this case anymore exactly. because they're gone now and you can't provide for someone on the other side of the ocean. But I think it is this protector instinct that you, as the father, you are kind of responsible for your children's well-being. And now they are distance from you; they are far away from you. But 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 this this kind of lingering innermost kind of feeling that you are responsible for the children's well-being and, and you try it as best as you can to ensure their well-being. I think this persists and this is a gender reaction and a a gender reaction also an example of of the resiliency that many of these jewish men tried to perform so maybe just to give one or two examples also cognizant of time here uh, just to give one or two examples um, the children would have made it into safety say in north america or the uk i came across countless letters written by jewish fathers giving their children exact um instructions what to do how to study English they would send them a dictionary they would tell them how to to which city to go what, what's the best school to go to they would tell them how to behave how to um you know not be a nuisance or a burden to maybe the foster parents etc etc so sometimes quite cute and cute as in you know advice that it makes absolute no sense or that the children probably could figure themselves. But my point here is they're trying to uphold a social dynamic, a relationship vis-a-vis their children, and thereby try to continue being fathers. This was vitally important for them. In fact, this could have sustained a a will in them to to survive and to get out of this, this, this predicament that they were in. Of course, they couldn't foresee Auschwitz and the Holocaust, but just being a father in itself, could instill this, this kind of this, 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 yeah, this, this, this will to 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 get out of this and to see their children again in the future. It gave them hope. It gave them a, 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 a yeah, kind of a hope basically, and uh, t- to make it through. Being a father, seeing your children again, being there for your children, trying to guide your children, help your children um, now and in the future was something very much important for Jewish husbands, and that they kind of they clinged on this, this, this kind of gender manifestation.
0: Yeah. What, what can students of other genocides learn from your study?
1: Okay. That sounds more like a concluding question here. Now we're going bigger. Um, I don't know how to keep this short or maybe I should, I mean, I should keep it short, but I mean, if we look at genocides, the evolution of genocide more generally, I would just humbly ask that we need to be more attentive to the gendered aspects that violence and genocide in general can take again this is in no way a means to undermine or neglect the vulnerable vulnerable position um, of women and children um, in war and in mass violence they are often the first victims again i'm not trying to kind of you know um create this kind of hierarchy of suffering here i think that would be very meaningless and actually quite futile um they are often the most vulnerable ones and and therefore, I don't know, efforts to protect women and children are are absolutely necessary. I'm thinking, for instance, right now of the Ukraine conflict, for instance. I mean, when we look at refugee movements, say from the Ukraine, there's many other contemporary instances as well. Um, the, the refugees from the Ukraine were mostly um Women and and children who would find you know refuge in Poland and Germany and so on, while the men stay behind, and and often against their will actually, or sometimes against their will because they are needed um to to fight the war in this case the war against Russia. So what I'm trying to say here is that I think we need to be a little bit more aware when it comes to violence, conflict, war, genocide, that men, you know, play a very vital role here, and they are also very vulnerable. In fact, in most Cases where we have mass violence happening, war happening, the first victims are actually typically men. Um, now, this is not my opinion or a, or or a controversial argument that I'm trying to you know come forward here with. Um, this is I'm relying here on, on on genocide scholars, Adam Jones, for instance, is someone um, also at UBC by the way um, who coined the phrase gender side, and he gives a few instances where he points out that it is middle-aged, abled men, so in the age of being soldiers, who are the most vulnerable ones during conflict because the other side, the enemy, would consider exactly that group, middle-aged, abled men, as the most inherent threat, and therefore would target men first. And I think we see that in various conflicts. Um, maybe to just give one example, the the, the famous uh, Srebrenica massacre in the Yugoslavian wars in the mid-1990s. I uh, saw saw um, thousands of, 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 of killings, of massacres, where people were gunned down and they were all men. So again, not trying to create a hierarchy of, of suffering here and, and playing men against women and vice versa. I just think we need to be a little bit more aware when it comes to the study of violence and war and genocide that genders experience violence very, very differently. They can be targeted differently, again, verbally, discursively, but also physically. And on the other side of the coin, um, this, uh, this kind of violence gets perceived differently according to gender, according to age, according to class. I mean, my entire study relies on intersectionality. I talked for the most part today about about gender, a little bit about class, a little bit about age. Uh, but I'm I'm making this I'm trying to make this quite clear in my introduction um, that it is this intersectional composition of of different identities that together make us be make us more aware and and better appreciate,
0: um, yeah, the dynamics of violence and the experience of this kind of violence including genocide on page 163 you write as follows on the other hand jewish men in their notes to their wives and children continued to provide advice and care to their families and on the other hand they received important support from their families a focus on the often neglected pre-war years demonstrates that german jewish men were remarkably resilient and successful in performing their roles as heads of their families can you say more about this?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um I think that's an interesting quote. Um as I was just trying to allude to in my previous answer um when I was referring to this history of emotions and how fathers kind of developed a newfound intimacy with their loved ones, their children and their spouses and tried to uphold this role even through geographic distance say when the children were out of the country and jewish men continued you know trying to be mentors and role models and and giving them advice and trying to take care of their physical and emotional well-being i think what this quote that you just picked especially the second part there um um alludes to is this is a two-way street so to speak so it's not like that you know Jewish men are the only ones who give advice and who try to keep the family together this is not kind of a story of one hero here who you know is, is at the forefront and is trying to protect what this quote is trying to say is that Jewish men also were the recipients of much needed emotional support from their families and from their wives and again it's what I was trying to say in the previous answer it helped them. To, to kind of manifest a, 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 a will a survival instinct so to speak a purpose to weather this and, and get through this so without the emotional support that these men received in, for instance in the concentration camps I think some would have actually given up sooner or or, or would have given up in the first place mm-hmm. so when we look at these letter exchanges again gender is re- relational and when women or the children sending the letters back to their husbands, say in concentration camps or back in Nazi Germany and say asking for advice or these kinds of things, then 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 Jewish men would feel kind of vindicated, so to speak. They would feel they are needed and they would feel like there is a purpose still in, in, in their existence, in other words. And that gave them kind of a sense of, of, of usefulness, so to speak. And that helped them could that could help them. Um, in, in their ultimate survival, so to speak. That could include other things too, though, say sending, just sending a letter, just the, the fact that the family sends a letter and shows, hey, we think about you, we care about you, we miss you. That was incredibly important for these Jewish men. Sending some postcards in the early years before the uh, before the war, before the Holocaust, it was also possible to send packages. So sending, you know, a little item, maybe a photograph, Food packages, these kinds of things, stockings, a blanket, and so on. This was an essential line of communication. I would say it was an essential line of communication that enabled this Jewish man to persevere and 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 try to survive this, yeah, the, the Nazi onslaught, so to speak. And this is part of this kind of gender dynamic. So, being part of that family as a father basically was this important puzzle piece so to speak um that they could rely on and that could help them yeah to be so resilient it's a great great question
0: as we bring today's dialogue to a close can you tell us about about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book
1: yeah that's a good question too i mean i was very fortunate to get the book published um with the university of toronto press not too long ago and now it's you know going through the media and, and and whatnot um my personal plans professional plans if that's what you're after right now I'm very preoccupied with teaching in the Vancouver area of course and fulfilling all kinds of administrative tasks um but my personal, research project i'm working on right now is as part of the vancouver holocaust education center in yeah in vancouver obviously i came across a diary it was given to me by a family a distant family member and it is one of these diaries or memoirs i should say um, that i studied in such great detail but that is that but that tells a little bit of a different story and i'm currently analyzing it maybe just to keep the audience excited here. Um, It is um, a family of German Jews who, however, had lived in Yugoslavia and who experienced the Second World War through a radically different lens. I mean, Yugoslavia was invaded um, by the Germans and together with the Italians in 1941, and then um, a new government was installed, to the Croatian fascist government, and basically the memoir tells about the story of survival and flight, especially through Italy, where they would actually encounter a considerable amount of support by the Italian authorities, but also Italian civilians. So I'm trying to stick to my home ground, looking at the Jewish experience during the Holocaust. Of course, I remain faithful to gender analysis, but right now I'm trying to expand my focus a little bit and leave Germany proper and study more um, the geographies of, of, of horror, so to speak, um, on the European white continent.
0: I wish you the very best. Thank you, Ari. This was a pleasant conversation. I hope my answers were not too long. No, thank you for your generous erudite and magnanimous responses throughout the course of our dialogue today.
1: Thank you again for giving me the chance to have that conversation with you.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm your host on the New Books Network podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Sebastian Hubel. We have been discussing his newly published book, Fighter, Worker and Family Man, German Jewish Men and Their Gendered Experiences in Nazi Germany 1933 to 1941, published in Toronto by University of Toronto Press 2022. Thank you wholeheartedly.